Good morning. It is a, it's a privilege to be here. Uh, I actually got to follow Nathan Turkwit at RUF Mississippi State uh, and lived in his shadow for a long time. Um, so, uh, and it's fun to see many of my students here uh, from RUF State. Uh, it's a privilege. I love seeing y'all in the church. Uh, we're going to be in Exodus 17 this morning. It is in your bulletin. Uh, but I want you to consider, though, before we read it, some powerful lyrics from uh, the great singer-songwriter James Taylor. Uh, he has a song called Another Gray Morning, and it's a song about a mom with a young child and just basically the feelings of sorrow and despair that can come even in just the ordinary daily grind of life. And somebody struggled to enter that world. Here, here's a little bit of it. Here comes another gray morning, a not so good morning after all. She says, well, what am I to do today with too much time and so much sorrow? She hears the baby waking up downstairs. She hears the foghorn calling out across the sound. Repetition in the morning air is just too much to bear and no one seems to care. She said, move me, move me. I'm locked up inside. She said, make me angry. Or just, made, or just make me cry, but no more gray mornings. I think I'd rather die. And I start with that because I really do think it is this powerful description of maybe that many of us have felt where you're, in, you're at a point in life and you just think, there's no way this is the way it's supposed to feel. And I think many times, even as a Christian, if that's what you are this morning, you can look up because of things that are going on inside your own life, are circumstances that have happened to you, and you begin to think there is no way that this is what the Christian life is supposed to feel like. No way. And what we're about to read in Exodus 17 is a situation where the Israelites in the Old Testament are God's people. They are brought to a place actually by God where they are tempted to despair, where they look up and they say, there is no way that following God is supposed to look and feel like this. This can't be it. So let me, uh, let me pray for us and then we'll read God's word. Lord, um, you are kind and you are good and you are strong. And we need to know that because we come this morning uh, weak. We come this morning uh, with questions. Um, some of us are probably still trying to figure out who you are. Uh, others of us are in places of sorrow and grief. Uh, others of us are in places of joy. Uh, but we ask that you would make good on your promise, that your word would not return void, that we would see that the final word is Jesus Christ, uh, and we would see him uh, and trust him. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here's Exodus 17, verse 1. <clears throat> All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I'll stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, 
because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right, let's, uh, let's just look at two things together this morning. What is the Israelites' problem and what's the Lord's remedy? Pretty simple. First, what is the Israelites' problem? Where we are in Exodus 17 is the Israelites, if you look at biblical history, they have been delivered from slavery in Exodus, uh, from, the, from the powers of, of Egypt. And if uh, w- w- what the biblical account, account tells us is probably there's a million people at this point who've come out of slavery by God doing these incredible miracles crossing the Red Sea. And they are following the Lord right now in the wilderness with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, wherever the Lord leads them. And they stop at Rephidim and they set up camp. And here's what you begin to realize. This is a bad situation. Verse one, there is no water. None can be seen. Verse two, give us water to drink. Verse three, they thirsted for water. Now, if you're like me, this isn't a good trait, but it's, it's relatively easy to be smug towards people in the Bible, right? And, and maybe you read this and you look and you think, I mean, come on. Uh, you know, they're, they're a little thirsty. God's done these miracles. But remember the setting. There are probably a million men, women, and children, elderly people in the middle of a dangerous wilderness. And so you've got to imagine like a mom holding her crying infant with a parched throat, or a son next to his elderly dad who is weak and hot and they're in the middle of the wilderness and there is no water. The New Living Translation verse three says that they were tormented by thirst. I I just want you to feel that sense of panic. I'm not saying that their grumbling is right or their panic was right, but, but surely you get it. They've been following where God leads them And now they're tormented by thirst in the middle of the wilderness, and there is no water to be seen. And so what do they do? They get angry, right? And you've seen this mob mentality for them in panic. They stir each other up. They get angry. And who do they get angry towards? Well, Moses, it seems, but Moses knows this in verse 2. He says, why do you test the Lord? Moses knows that, yes, they're angry at him, but that's just because he's the representative of God, They are actually angry at the Lord. And so when they accuse Moses, who is God's representative, they are accusing God. And finally, at the end of verse 3, their anger boils over into saying, remember, you got moms holding their babies. Did you just bring us out here to kill our children? That's the accusation. So this is Israel's problem. They are in circumstances that really are scary, that really are dark. They think they're going to die. And hear me, these are the people of God. Their thirst was real. And they're following where God led them. They didn't make a wrong turn. And I say that just to start because my bet is that there's a large portion of you this morning that find yourself in scary places. And it's real. And you you don't have to dumb down those scary and dark places that you are. Because the Bible doesn't either. And if you belittle the sin or the suffering in your life, you actually will end up belittling the Lord and his grace and his salvation. So you can own that. And so maybe there, maybe there has been a death in your family recently, or maybe the word cancer has come, and you acutely feel that. And it's hard, and it's dark. 
And there might be days that you feel like you just can't keep going on. And what you feel inside, and maybe you've spoken it, is you think this. Really, Lord? Like, this is how you're going to leave me? I've tried to follow you, and I'm just, you just left me out to die? Or maybe, um, maybe something really dark with one of your children is going on. And the feelings of, you know, as a parent of, I know I've made mistakes, but I've tried my best. I've tried to point them to Jesus. I've tried to honor the Lord. And my child is just making decisions that are just hurting him, hurting him. And he doesn't care. And that just is a place of real darkness where you cry out. Have you just felt, left my family out here to die? Is this where you're going to leave me after, after trying to do my best? Or maybe you're facing unemployment or, or any kind of dark situation or a sin pattern on the inside that just won't go away. And you just think, really, this is how you're going to leave me. And I emphasize that the thirst is real and that our struggles are real because I don't want to belittle it because the scriptures never do. But I kind of tricked you a little bit because the problem ultimately isn't their circumstances, though they're hard and scary. The problem is their response. The distrust and sin that comes out of their hearts because of the situation that they're in. And that becomes the driving question of this first point. Look, whether you're here trying to figure out who God is and who Jesus is, or whether you've been a Christian for as long as you can remember, you will have dark circumstances come into your life. And the question is, where do you turn? What do you do with that? Because the temptation is, I'll just do whatever it takes to get out of this. I don't want to feel like this anymore. And that can just be put on an this happens in the church, put on an unaffected face and downplay my circumstances, say, well, you know, I'm not like those people in Africa, which is what we say all the time. Or the temptation uh, is to just numb ourselves with distraction or addictions or anything. And the final temptation is just to eject God from the scenario and say, well, I guess he's just not a part of this. And we just end up bitter and distrusting the Lord. But later on in the scripture, the psalmist is going to reference this passage and say, do not harden your hearts as they did at Meribah. Which means the answer, and this really is shocking if you think about the fact that God led them there, the answer is to trust the Lord. To soften your heart to the one who is still in control. The one who actually led you there. There's a song that we sing in RUF. I don't know if y'all sing it here. It's called Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. And I love it because I think it just speaks to the reality of the Christian life can, can feel. And here's what it says. It says, when gloomy doubts prevail, I fear to call thee mine. And the springs of comfort seem to fail and all my hopes decline. Right? So everything looks dark. And then he says, yet gracious God, where shall I flee? Thou art my only trust. And still my soul would cleave to thee, though prostrate in the dust. I've got nowhere else to turn. You're all I've got. I'm prostrate in the dust. I'm going to stay here. And so that's the situation, is they're in real dark circumstances that's causing them to panic and sin and distrust is coming out of their heart. So what's his remedy? What does the Lord do? If the Israelites respond sinfully, what you'll begin to realize is that even amidst, actually you could say, because of the backdrop of their distrust and sin, the Lord and his graciousness is going to shine through what does the Lord do? He does two things. First, 
He provides water. This is who God is. He gives water. I love this. He still gives it to them. The goodness of God comes shining through in Exodus 17. Right, if you think about, if you're familiar with this story, earlier in Exodus, this isn't the first time that the Israelites grumble and complain. They grumble and complain when they're being oppressed as slaves uh, to the Egyptian empire, and they grumble and complain, and you know how their master responds, Pharaoh? He makes them work harder. He grinds them into the ground. They grumble and complain to Moses, and what, how does Moses respond? Verse 4, he basically says, what am I going to do with them? I'm basically done with these people. So then they grumble and complain to the Lord. And how does he respond? How does he respond to the people that he has graciously saved, walked with, and loved? I kind of expect him to respond like Moses. Like, yeah, what are we going to do with these people? This is crazy. But look what he does. His answer to tired, weary, and rebellious people who have accused him of abandoning them. As he says this, Moses, let's go, let's go meet their need. Let's go get them some water. And he provides, which is amazing. Even with the sinful, rebellious response, he provides what they need. Which at some level has to say to us, how much more can we come to him now that we know that he is our, he's our loving father, that he will actually provide? Will you believe that? I'm not saying that there aren't really lonely Christians or starving Christians or people who stay in these circumstances for a long time. But I am saying that you can trust him, that he'll ultimately provide what you need. And many times it's not in the timing that we want, and he doesn't provide from places that we think. I don't think the Israelites thought that water would come from a rock that day, but that's where it came from. I have... I work with college students. I can't tell you how many times that college students, their freshman year or sophomore year, they find themselves more lonely than they thought, surrounded by thousands of people, but feel utterly isolated. And interestingly, it is through their loneliness, not apart from it, that God provides friends that they otherwise never would have expected. I know, um, I know people uh, who it is through uh, the dysfunction of the families that they have lived in, and maybe an abandonment of the parent, that they found fathers and mothers in the church that they otherwise never would have had. I know people who, through divorce and through abuse, that's awful, it's awful, that they ended up finding people that cared for them that otherwise they never would have. God providing in places that they never would have thought and through hard circumstances. And if you've walked with Jesus at all, you know that it is actually not apart from, but through my sin and through my struggle, that I experience God's grace in, in ways that I otherwise wouldn't. And so the Lord, that what he does is he, he doesn't change their circumstance at, at first, but then he ends up doing it and he remedies it and he can remedy your situation as well. But knowing and trusting the Lord for who he is means that we ask for what we want. We ask for circumstantial change, but if it doesn't come, God is saying, you can still trust me. Because ultimately he knows what we need is inward transformation. What he's ultimately about is changing us from the inside out. And he will always provide for that. And that's what he does secondly. The second thing that he does is he provides himself. This is the best part. I wish we had more time, but 
It's an Old Testament professor named Ed, Edmund Clowney. He unlocks what I think is the jewel of this passage. Because what is going on in, in Exodus 17 is more than just run-of-the-mill grumbling and complaining. Exodus 17 is a courtroom trial. All right, in verse 7, when they named the place Meribah, quarreling, that Hebrew word technically means to bring a charge. Courtroom language. Moses names the place Meribah because that's where legal charges were, were laid against God and Moses. That's why in verse 4, Moses says, they're ready to stone me. That's execution language. What Moses is saying is, God, the people are charging me and you with breaking the covenant. With not upholding, they're saying, God, you're not upholding what you promised. You're not protecting, you're not taking care of, you're not loving them till the end. They, they are trying to take God to court. And if you've ever been in a courtroom, you know this, that, that when you see a courtroom, even the way that the furniture is, is kind of set up and the way the courtroom is set up, everything in there is communicating this, or supposed to. This is a place where the truth is going to get sorted out. This is the place that we're going to try to figure out who's done what, what's gone wrong, and we're going to sort it out. And when the Israelites ask for a trial for a courtroom, the Lord says, okay, set it up. Let's sort it out. And so in verse 5, Moses takes two things. He says, grab some of the elders, and they pass in front of the people. The elders were the formal witnesses in court. So the Israelites are watching the formal witnesses come and take their spot. But then what else does Moses get asked to take? His staff. Now, why his staff? The text tells you because it's the staff that he struck the Nile with. You see, previously in Exodus, if you go back in the accounts, when the Israelites were being pressed by the Egyptians, the Lord kept telling Pharaoh, let my people go, let my people go. And every time he refused, the Lord brought judgment to Pharaoh. He turns the Nile into blood. He brings boils and gnats. And then at the Red Sea, Moses raises his staff. And what happens? The whole, the whole Egyptian army and Pharaoh himself are destroyed by the Red Sea because the staff becomes the symbol of God's judicial authority and his power. Whenever the staff came down, it pronounced and enacted judgment from the Lord. And so the staff is this visible picture of God's justice and power. So my Old Testament professor said this, and you've, used this, you've heard this term used flippantly. I'm not using it flippantly at all. This really is true, that the staff is literally God's damning stick. It's the goddamn stick. That's what it is. Because whenever he took it out, it brought the damning judgment of God. And so you've got to keep that scene uh, in your mind because imagine the people are accusing God. They're saying God doesn't love us. He's, he's leaving us out here to die. And then all of a sudden they see a court being set up and then they see Moses coming with his staff. What would you think? I'm accusing God. I say he's leaving us out here to die. Here's a courtroom and here comes Moses with his staff. I would think, oh shoot, this is it. We've only ever seen the staff go out on our enemies and now we're here. Don't you know they're thinking, we're finally about to get it. Our life is finally caught, caught up to us. I mean, did you ever have one of those days, I had these more than I want to admit, where I did something inordinately bad and rebellious to my mom? And she said, we're just going to have to wait for dad to get home to take care of this. And it was like the longest four hours of your life, right? 
because uh, you just waited. That had to be the feeling that they finally think, okay, we finally crossed the line. We've blown it. God finally realizes that the people that he saved just aren't the kind of people he thought we were going to be. We just kind of aren't made of good stuff. We don't trust him, and our life and our choices are finally catching up with us. And look, that's what a lot of us do in really difficult circumstances, and that's the double suffering, is that deep down inside, that when hard things are coming my way, I think, I knew it. I knew it. At some point, I knew the Lord would grow tired of me. I've been a Christian for, whatever, 20 years, (laughs) I should be farther along than I am. I should have more sin under control. This is it. The hammer's finally dropping. Or I've been a pastor for crying out loud and I still don't have it together. And people are figuring that out. And so that's what we begin to think in dark, in dark circumstances that the Lord has finally figured out I'm just not who he thought I was. And if you feel like the Lord is frustrated with you in dark circumstances, it's the double suffering because it's not true but it creates a double suffering. But look what happens. This really is incredible. God does show up. He shows up in the courtroom and he stands on the rock at Horeb. I don't know what that looked like, but he's there. He stands as the accused party on the rock and Moses brings down the staff of judgment, the damning stick, not on the accusing, fearful, rebellious Israelites. He strikes the rock where the Lord stands. And everybody watches as judgment is executed on the rock, not the grumblers, and water comes gushing out. I want you to really think about this. How good is God? Try this on. At the trial, here's the accusations that the Israelites really do make towards God. They accuse the Lord not just of abandoning them, but of a plot to murder them. They accuse the Lord of intentionally bringing them out into the wilderness to let them die of thirst. Just think about that accusation. Imagine a scenario where you have a person who has conned a million people, elderly, kids, moms, dads. He has conned them and has set up a plan to make these promises and lead them into this wilderness and actually to kill them. What would you say that person deserved? It doesn't matter what tri- it doesn't matter what culture, what time period. Here's what almost any culture or time period would say that person deserved. They would say this: if that if those charges were true, that somebody conned a million people into 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 killing them by starvation and thirst, people would say, okay, that person deserves to suffer greatly. That person should should be taken from his home and be and be forced to wander around. That person should suffer greatly. That person should actually be paraded in front of the very people that he promised to save. And they should be able to mock him. They should be able to take their shots at him, tell him what they think of him. And then he just needs to, he needs to be executed. He needs to made, be made to publicly suffer. All of his possessions need to be taken because he took, he took everything from everybody else. And as, and as he is executed publicly, here's what should happen he should certainly never get a drink of water. He needs to know the evil of what he's done. And he needs to die being tormented by thirst. That would be the sentiments, I think, of any culture for anyone who conned a million people out into the wilderness to plan on killing them by starvation and thirst. And right here in Exodus 17, 
in front of everyone is as if God says, that sounds fair. You're right. Even though I've been nothing but good to you, strike me. And don't you see who is standing on the rock? The Apostle Paul comments on this passage thousands of years later. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, and they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. It's the second person of the Trinity standing on the rock, receiving the judgment. Why? Because he's demonstrating just what kind of God that he is. That yes, he'll sort it out. He's going to sort it out in our hearts first. And sure enough, thousands of years later, God takes on human flesh. And what does he do? He wanders the earth in the wilderness. He, he has no place to lay his head. He gets paraded out in front of the very people that he promised to save. And they mock him and they spit upon him and they take his shots. But the humiliation and suffering, it keeps increasing. In the last day of his life, he's arrested. He's... He's, he's abused, he's used, he's spit upon, and he's publicly executed. And he cries out, I thirst, because there is no water given to him. He's undergoing excruciating dehydration. And then he goes straight to hell, taking the wrath of God in our place. Why does he do that? It's not because the Israelites' accusations were true against God. It's not because God's a con man. It's not because Jesus is evil. It's because we are. We're the frauds. We're the ones that posture ourselves that make it look like we love God more than we do. We're the people who distrust the Lord. Not him. But the Lord says, all right, we'll sort it out. Strike me. And there's Jesus taking the punishment of a con man who would have led a million people out into the wilderness. That's who God is. Yes, he brings judgment on himself instead of us. Jesus did not come to execute execute judgment, not on us, but on himself. Which means if you're in Christ this morning, if you've trusted him, whatever is going on in your life, it cannot be because the staff is finally coming down on you. It's not because things are finally catching up to you. Yes, one day things are going to be sorted out. There'll be no more darkness, no more sin. But what he's doing right now is he's sorting out things in our heart. Instead of maybe just immediately changing circumstances, maybe relieving another gray gray morning, maybe taking away loneliness, what he's doing is replacing self-pity with the knowledge of his love for you. He's changing your heart so that even amidst gray mornings or extraordinary suffering, you can know that the Lord is with you. And he's not against you. He can't be. He took the staff in our place. And that reality of Jesus and his love for you and his intimacy for you, it begins to change you on the inside because it takes away fear and it brings trust even on gray mornings, even in dark circumstances. So I'll end with this. There's um, a a friend of mine who was a a pastor, uh, I tell the story a lot, back when he was in seminary, something you have to do in seminary at most places, you have to, you have to complete an internship uh, before you can get ordained. And like most seminary students, he was about three months away and realized he'd only done about mm, 10% of his internship. So he's scrambling the last two months to, you know, complete all this stuff. And one of the things you have to do is you go to nursing homes. And so uh, he went on this one Sunday uh, on Mother's Day to Really, it's one of the, it's one of the um, 
It was one of the more poor nursing homes in the area. So the people without means were there. And he wandered to the back. He had flowers that he was handing out for Mother's Day. And he wandered into the back, which is where the, really the poorest were. It was the, it was the worst part of the nursing home. He said when he walked into that section, it was just smelly. It was dim. The facilities were bad. And he, and he comes upon this lady who um, face was kind of disfigured. She smelled. She was elderly. And she's just sitting in her bed and he hands her a flower and he says, happy Mother's Day. And she says, oh, thank you. She says, would you, would you hand this to somebody that can appreciate it? She said, I'm actually blind, so I can't see it. And would you tell them that Jesus loves them? So he does that and he goes back home and he just said for the rest of the week, her name was Mabel. He said he could not quit thinking about Mabel. Because just imagine this lady in just this awful situation, alone, smelly, sick, and old. And yet, there's just something about her that radiated joy. So the next Sunday, he went straight back to her. He found her. There she was in the bed again. And he just said, Mabel, I just, I just got to know, like, what do you do all day? Like, how do you pass the minutes? She said, oh, I, I just think. I think about Jesus a lot. And he said, I love this honesty, he said, I think about thinking about Jesus. I can think maybe for three minutes and my mind wanders and I just think about something else too. He's just like, what do you think about Jesus? And she said, you know, I think about how good he's been to me. Lots of people don't care what I think, but he means all the world to me. He's been so good. And he said that really changed him. I want you to think about what Mabel did. Mabel's circumstances were awful, but she made the flip of faith. Instead of seeing who God is through her circumstances and judging God's character by that, what faith is is she flipped the foreground and she saw Jesus and who he was and saw her circumstances through his goodness. And that's how she began interpreting life. And that's the ending message. Look, no matter the situation, Jesus came to save. He didn't come to shame you this morning. He didn't come to disappoint and he certainly didn't come to ruin us. Because he was ruined on a cross 2,000 years ago. He's for you. That's who Jesus is. And that means whatever physical, relational, emotional suffering that's going on, it doesn't mean Jesus is against you. But he's sorting out our hearts. And that has the power to send you back to the gray mornings, back to the workplace that doesn't appreciate you, back back to the places of sorrow with real hope. And I can keep repenting of the bitterness that comes up in me because he's good. Do you know that God, the real God, who takes our judgment so that he can be close to us? That's an invitation. Let me pray. Father, it really is amazing that we can call you Father, um, because I think most of us, were honest, we even look at this week, we're met that we're rebellious children. Uh, we, we don't appreciate you. Uh, we don't trust you like we should. And yet there you are with us, loving us, providing for us. Lord, I, I don't take any situation lightly. There are probably people in this room that are in real despair. And so, Lord, would, would, would they know that you are with them in that, that you love them, and that one day, someday, all things will be made new, and they can trust you in the now. Would you do that in Jesus' name? Amen.